Good morning and welcome to uh, Christ Community's Leeway Campus. I'm Tom Nelson and uh, really glad you're here on this beautiful fall day. Uh, I have to say it, I know it's not proper homiletics, but go Royals! Wow, how exciting. That's fun. You don't have to be a sports fan to love Kansas City this week, right? And go Chiefs and everybody else. So it is really fun and, and some of us are a little tired. I won't fall asleep if you don't this morning, okay? <laughs> Promise? I know it's a sleepy, sleepy time and uh, it's good. Well, I've never met her, but I would love to. She's an amazing woman, uh, a former tenured professor at Syracuse University. Uh, maybe you've heard of her, maybe you've read her amazing book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Her name is Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. In an interview recently, uh, an amazing woman, she describes her journey of faith, and this is what she says. As a leftist, lesbian professor, I despise Christians. Then somehow I became one. I was a broken mess, she writes. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. Then she says, the voice of God sang a sanguine song of love in the rubble of my world. Now, Rosaria's story encourages me, it challenges me on multiple levels. But more than anything else, I think, is to know the story that a pastor and his wife loved her, and invited her for dinner in their home. And as Rosaria tells us in her journeys of faith that it was actually the pastor's prayer before the meal, his authentic heartfelt prayer to a God she had no idea who he was, that sparked the love seed that her heart so deeply longed for. Now, as a Christian and as a pastor, I have to say this morning, very transparently, it's all too easy in my heart of hearts, if you were to get below my Sunday smiles and professionalism, to sometimes write certain people off as being uninterested in God or somehow so far from God. Most of the time in my heart of hearts that you do not see, I'm kind of thankful for that at times, it's often people who have vastly different economic or political views than I do, or people who have different religious ideas or non-religious ideas than I do, or people who live different lifestyles than I do, or really, if I'm really transparent, people who struggle with different sins than I do. How quickly it is, it seems to me, that Christians write people off People who we think are too far gone or too far down in life or even sometimes who are too successful in life, who are somehow out of the loving reach of Jesus. And maybe you are here this morning and transparently the greater challenge of your heart is not writing others off, it's writing yourself off. Perhaps because of a messy life, past and present, you have convinced yourself that You've just done too many bad things, or you're just too much of a mess for God to love or to forgive or to even change you. That you are somehow beyond Jesus' loving reach and his kindness to you. And maybe you think if you were to look around this astute room, everybody around you with the Sunday smiles, if they really knew what you were like on the inside and what your life was like this week, they would write you off too. And the most amazing story we're going to explore this morning, we're going to discover 
one of the most hopeful truths for all of our lives. And that is the people we write off, Jesus runs to. If you've read a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to John's Gospel, John chapter 4. And we've been looking as a church family into this brilliant gospel, exploring how Jesus encounters people. Last week, we encountered a very interesting character, did we not? His name was Nicodemus, a very wealthy, prominent religious leader, this who's who of society. But this morning, John is going to arrange his literary structure of his gospel by giving us riveting contrast, hairpin contrast. One who is anything but the socially elite, she is socially outcast. One who is anything like Nicodemus' moral respectability and religiosity, she is very morally suspect. In fact, John does something in his brilliant literature that we must not miss. She is so marginalized, for the first time in his gospel, he doesn't even mention her name. This stuns us. As we enter back into John's gospel, let's remember who's writing this. Let's walk back into time. John spent three years as a young, he was the youngest disciple, I think, that's what we think. He was a young man when he encountered Jesus. He spent three years with Jesus. Every waking moment he was with Jesus, and he saw all that Jesus did. He heard his conversations. He was the closest disciple to Jesus. But as time does in all of our lives, young and old, it moves by quickly. And now we know from the writing and the timing and the structure of this letter that it is in the late twilight of the first century. Many people have died and gone. John is in exile on Patmos. He's looking back with pen in hand, an elderly shaky hand, but a brilliant mind. And he thinks back to one of the most amazing conversations he ever recalls. A moment when Jesus is sitting by a woman at the well in Samaria. The level of detail of this conversation is striking compared to all the other conversation in the gospel. He remembers every detail because it shattered his cultural bias and prejudice. In verses 1 through 6, John gives us the setting of the story. And what we see here as we come into this gospel is, while Jesus' popularity is really rising fast, so is the anxiety of the religious aristocracy located in Jerusalem. They are seeing Jesus, this rabbi from the north, as a threat. Crowds are beginning to build. Rumors are beginning to fly. And perhaps the motivation of Jesus leaving Judea and, and heading north to Galilee is driven partly by this. Let me just see, because this text is deeply embedded in the geography of the map. You'll notice Jerusalem there right next to this Dead Sea picture there. Just north of that is Samaria, almost straight north. And what we have here is that the northern part of Palestine or Israel at this time was viewed as Hicksville by the religious elite in Jerusalem. Everything was in Jerusalem, and Judea surrounded Jerusalem. So what we see in the text is that <clears throat> Jesus is in Judea near Jerusalem, and he heads north. I think Jesus is probably feeling a bit of the heat, and it's not his time yet. So he heads back to Galilee. Now, rabbis often went, instead of straight to Samaria, because it was the rough part of town, uh, and we'll see this in the narrative in the story, they headed south to, or down east to Jericho, and then went up the Jordan River and then back over. It was an easier route. It was also kept them from the rough part of town, which was Samaria. 
But John is very specific here. And it's a literary clue to the whole narrative, the whole story. It's this little word and phrase that Jesus had to go through Samaria. There are many words for had in the Greek text. This one is unique in this text. It's unusual. And it's emphatic. That is, John is saying that Jesus found it necessary to go up to the rough part of town rather than down through Jericho, a little longer route that wasn't as rough. So was this a geographical necessity? What, what was going on? We don't know exactly. But John is being very specific. And the illusion here is that Jesus' messianic mission was driving there, that Jesus had a divine appointment with someone. Let's remember that one of the threads of thought in John's mind to present Jesus as Messiah, the anointed one, is Jesus' amazing omniscience, his supernatural knowledge, not only of all knowledge, but of every human heart. He's been weaving this story all the way through that Jesus looks through the hearts and minds of everyone. He knows what's in man or woman. So it's not surprising at all that John builds his story around Jesus' brilliant knowledge, his extraordinary knowledge of the hearts and minds of everyone What a divine appointment it is as we enter the story. (laughs) John introduces us to a very tired Jesus. He's been traveling several hours early in the morning. Most likely it's in the heat of the sun, midsummer, because we hear more about a harvest later. And he rests at a well. And we pick it up in verses 7 through 8. Now, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, John says, Jesus said to her, and remember, (laughs) John is sitting right there. This is firsthand, earshot, remembrance. And the woman said to him, will you give me a drink? And John wants to create a sense of narrative here, and he says, now, Jesus' disciples, apart from him, he's sitting right there, has gone in, have gone in to buy food. They're hungry and thirsty, it's the middle of the day. Now, what we often miss across cultural uh, moments and time and geography and language is what a shocking moment this is. This is not like someone saying, hi, how are you today? We think, hmm, that's an interesting deal. But Jesus is a male. He's a rabbi, and he's deeply Jewish. And he engages this woman in a respectful conversation. Now, why is this so shocking? Because a Samaritan woman in this culture had three strikes against her, and she's out. Three strikes, every reader would have understood in the first century. First, she's a woman in a male-dominated culture in that time. She's also a Samaritan in a Jewish-dominated cultural context. Now, there's a great deal of painful history behind the Jews and Samaritans going back to the Old Testament of ethnic struggles and religious struggles, and that's woven into the text. And John wants all of us to know, in case we don't get it, that the Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. He will actually give us that parenthetical clause in the story. But third, also, a strike against this woman is she was morally suspect very morally suspect. In a culture that valued religious moral respectability. We know this later in the conversation, it becomes explicit, but right here we know it by a cue in the cultural code. And that is, this woman arrives from her village at the well at noon. No woman would ever do that, the heat of the day. And women came together. It was sort of like, you know, Starbucks. They all kind of gathered. It was a fellowship time as well as getting water, which was number one to-do list on home chores every day. 
So John tips his hand to the reader who's astute to say, this woman's by herself at the well at noon. No woman would be there unless she was absolutely outcast. Now, we don't often think how scandalous this picture is. John knew this. And Jesus' actions, y'all, are just unthinkable, <laughs> let alone his words to this woman. And Jesus here is modeling something. He is shattering well-entrenched religious and ethnic prejudice, let alone gender bias. Because the blinding cultural norms of the day can impede the truth of the gospel. And they can be challenging for us. I, all of us have had experience like that, haven't we? Have you ever been in another culture where you've done something really stupid you didn't know? Now, Jesus knows what he's doing. One of my most amazing moments, I'll never forget, was being at Mia Shreem, which is an Orthodox Jewish place in Jerusalem right before Shabbat or Sabbath. And Liz and I were there in graduate school in Israel. We were trying to get ready for the evening, and we walk on the bus early in the route, and we sit down, there's plenty of spaces, and the bus fills up. I mean, it fills up to armpits. And I'm sitting down, because I started first, and this elder lady comes on with all the Shabbat preparation, all her bags, all her bread, all of it. I immediately, what? Stand up. And the whole bus explodes with anger. I sat down. (laughs) Now, maybe... You've had experiences like that culturally where you just, this is a Jerusalem bus moment at this well. There would have been a riot if it wouldn't have been Jesus, John, and the woman. The woman picks this up in very beautiful ways. She's simply stunned by the inappropriate rabbi, and, and she's like, dude, what is this you're doing? I mean, maybe she didn't say dude. Okay, I'll give you that. But you can tell the incredulity she has. And this launches a fascinating conversation. Notice how Jesus cuts through all the cultural baggage and he speaks to the deepest longings of her thirsty soul. That's where he goes. Jesus, first in the story, offers her what everybody wants, all of us wants, and that's deep satisfaction of life. So he says to her in coded language, if you knew who was speaking to you, if you knew who I was, you'd ask for the gift that I can only give you. And it's a gift that will satisfy your soul like nothing else. It's not just water from this well. This is living water from God himself, the God who created the universe. And of course, this woman is just flabbergasted. She's culturally just blown away. She can't figure out what this guy's talking about. He's a complete stranger. And so she's hearing this idea of water and how this water can be better than Jacob's well. You've got to be kidding me. Now, why is Jacob's well so important in the story? Culturally and biblically, Jacob's well is a big deal. Again, going back to our graduate time in Israel many years ago, we actually, uh, with professors, have spent time right at this well. And, and, you know, you hear stories about go to Israel and walk where Jesus walked, and some of it's just absolutely crazy. But this well is exactly where it was in Jacob. We know exactly where Jesus sat, within a few yards. That's pretty cool. Can't say that about hardly anything in in Israel. But I remember spending time. Now you can't hardly get there, but in our day, we were there. We had access and interacted and sat there. And it was a sense of awe, I have to tell you, sitting at that well. It was much better than Hollywood stars walking the avenue. Just want you to know. But this well had a sense of story about it. 
It was not only a place of getting good water, it was the pride of the Samaritan people and their tie to Jacob. And the dripping irony in the story is that the conversation begins with Jesus asking her for a drink. Now, do you see the dripping irony? Now, the woman is asking him for a drink. And she asked for this heavenly water. We're trying to figure this out too, right? But she asked for a very down-to-earth reason. Do you see that in the story? So she'll have one less busy duty to do in the middle of the day and not have to come to this thinking, well, quote-unquote, at noon by herself. So Jesus switches and addresses another need of her life. That is the need for the living water of forgiveness. Now, you'll notice in the story, as you read the story, I encourage you to read it carefully this week, Jesus does something, you go, hmm. All of a sudden, Jesus switches subjects. He asks her about her husband. Now, again, as a Jewish rabbi in that cultural context, ostensibly, this is a respectful way to treat a woman who's there by herself to say, let's talk together as husband and wife. This is a respectable thing. But underneath, there is also a double meaning. That Jesus is going to her messy life, her need for forgiveness, her messy moral life. And she's starting to feel uncomfortable. You would too. Jesus is beginning to read her mail, her messy mail. So she gives an evasive response. She says to him, I I have no husband. (laughs) You got to chuckle here because this is really a fun conversation. Jesus lets her know he knows a lot more more about her than she, she wants him to know. And the picture is, Jesus says, basically, here's what he says in our sort of commentary. Yeah, yeah. In a sense, you're being truthful to me. I think he had a grin on his face. It's just my hunch. And you know the guy you're sleeping with? He's not your husband. You're right. And, and by the way, what do you call those five guys you've been hanging with all these years? The husbands? Imagine yourself in this woman's shoes. He is a complete stranger. He's not from here. You know that. By his dress, his dialect, everything. You know he's strange. And he's cueing you in, in a delicate way, that he knows the most private, intimate thoughts and actions of your life. How would you feel? (laughs) I kind of feel for this woman, actually. I think Jesus was gentle, but boy, he just gets right to the heart of the matter. He hasn't been reading her Facebook page. It's not that. This is Twilight Zone, if you're into that generation. Spooky, woo-woo-woo stuff. You ever been there? This is spooky stuff. You'd be sweating bullets too. I would be. I love this woman's response. She says, you must be a prophet. And once again, Jesus is reminding her and us And John is reminding us, as the reader, that Jesus knows everything about us, even when we hide it. Even our respectability, our messy moral past, our religiosity, our hypocrisy, he still loves us. And Jesus doesn't point a condemning finger at us. 
Instead, John wants to remind us he lovingly pursues us. He doesn't reject us. He runs after us. Jesus communicates truth in a gentle way in the story, and this Samaritan woman had to be feeling very exposed, don't you think? Beginning in verse 20, she redirects the conversation, and you and I would too. This is getting awkward, way too personal. And she says, okay, Rabbi, uh, what about, uh, let's talk religion. What about the religious differences between my people and your people? She's still trying to preserve a facade of respectability. Jesus answers her spiritual question. Notice that? Jesus makes the point that the contentious differences between the Samaritans and Jews and the place of worship is now a moot point. It's a new day. It's a new day in God's redemptive story. And she picks up on it. Amazing woman. In the Samaritan tradition, there was a Tahib. That's like the anointed one, Messiah from Deuteronomy 18. It was coming one day to set the world aright. And she's like, hmm, that's a trigger. I've heard that at home before. There's something I've read in Torah. And Jesus affirms the insight of her. And he does something he very rarely ever does in the Gospels to this amazing, precious woman. In verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you, I'm he. Literally, the text says, I'm him. I'm the one who speaks to you. This must have taken her breath away. As soon as she said that, or as soon as he said that, the disciples arrived. Bad timing. Interruption with their bagels in hand, right? This is where they are. And what happens next in verse 27 is stunning. And John continues in the story. Just then his disciples come back. They marvel that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Though they were speechless, the stunned look on their faces said everything to John. But Jesus is not only reading their nonverbals. The omniscient Messiah is reading every thought of their mind and heart. And the disciples were busted. They had written off the Samaritan woman who Jesus ran after. The word John uses, it's translated marvel, is fascinating. It captures the sense of being stunned by a supernatural miracle. It's used when Jesus stilled the storm, you know, on the Sea of Galilee, if you've read the New Testament. When Jesus was raised from the dead physically, when they encountered the physical resurrection, this is the word they were, that was used. So John is saying, with splashing irony, that this moment was a miracle. This moment was a miracle. The woman at the well is not the only one who's not getting it. The disciples who have been with Jesus all this time are not getting it either. And that's the splashing irony. Their eyes are blinded. Jesus is talking to this woman, which is earth-shattering and shocking to the disciples, as any miracle of Jesus. That's the picture of John. And what the disciples don't see is the great miracle it took for Jesus to rescue them. It was no less demanding of omnipotence than rescuing this precious woman. See, do we see the fact that 
Jesus has come to you and me as a miracle and rescued us. That he offers to rescue Tom or you, as sinful as we all are. And that rescue is as much of a miracle to rescue me as to rescue this woman at the well. Maybe more. See, it takes as much of a miracle to change the religious heart as it does the irreligious heart. The respectable heart as it does the rebellious heart. Pastor Tim Keller hits this so beautifully. When he says, one of the marks of true Christians is that they never get over their salvation. They are surprised that God would save someone like them. Are you surprised that Jesus would rescue you? Someone like you? Someone like me? Do we write off those that Jesus loves? We must confront the spiritual peril of pride that lurks in our hearts. What the disciples got right was the moral purity piece. The holiness did matter. It does. But they were blind to the holier-and-thou attitude that prevented them from seeing their own sin and see the high value Jesus placed on this precious image-bearer who was broken and needed him, this glorious rune. So students, are there particular classmates in school that you are convinced are far from God and uninterested in God? Have you unwritten them off some way? How about employees, fellow employees at work? Who comes to your mind? Hostile, against faith, indifferent. What about family members, a spouse, a child, a parent? Have you written them off? We must not write off those who Jesus runs after. What I love in this story is that Jesus sees through all the messiness of the Samaritan woman's life and he sees what a glorious ruin she is and he listens to her and he meets her where she is. And what I've discovered is some of the most unlikely, quote-unquote, people to become Christians become the most compelling witnesses of the gospel. Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, an example, he was a satisfied atheist for many years, brilliant, satisfied, who describes himself as the most unlikely convert and reluctant convert in all of England to come to faith. And still his words written today, they're some of the most pervasive and persuasive words of the Christian faith ever written. People like Lewis or Dr. Butterfield become some of the most courageous and outspoken witnesses for Christ. And this is what we see in the story. Notice verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one? They hurried out of town and were coming to him. Don't you just love how John tells us that this woman left her water jar at the well? Somehow what had brought her to the well by herself pales in insignificance of what she got at the well, and she rushes back and leaves the water jar right there. And she becomes the town crier echoing to the whole town of what she's experienced. She says, come see a man who told me everything I did. That's repeated again later in the story. Now, if you're one of her five husbands or present lover or whatever it is, that would have caught your attention. But the whole town comes out, and they follow her to Jacob's well. 
disciples are focused on their hungry stomachs. That's the idea, not her thirsty soul. (laughs) And Jesus and his disciples end up staying two days at this village. And Jesus, at the end of the story, is described by the Samaritans as not the savior of the Samaritan people. Do you see that? Not just the savior of the Jews, but the savior of the entire world. Do you see that? Is that awesome? No one is outside of the reach of Jesus' loving hands. All their lives, the disciples lived in this fog of cultural prejudice against those Samaritan people. But when they began to see through Jesus' eyes, when they spent two days getting to know these people, they saw them differently. And that's the key. See, we all face the danger of cultural isolation and insularity and prejudice. All of us do. Certain groups of people we stereotype, we write off, we dismiss them. Rather than getting to know them personally and loving them. Shortly after we moved into our home in Kansas City, our first home, we've been in two homes, and right when we moved into our first home, we realized our next-door neighbors were devout Muslims. My first reaction was this. This is what I said to myself. I thought, this is going to be interesting. I'm not only a Christian, I'm a Christian pastor. But over the 10 years we were neighbors, they were some of our favorite neighbors. They invited us to our son's wedding, which is another story of encountering the Greek belly dancer, which I've said before. After the terrorist attacks on 9-11, we had the most gentle and warm conversation. See, it's all too easy for us in our cultural climate to write off our neighbors, fellow students, or coworkers who are of another faith or non-faith but it's very different when we know them personally. So who are the Samaritans in your life? This is a question I'm asking myself this week. Who are the people that you're writing off that Jesus is running after? Perhaps it's those who are too far down in society. Maybe the Samaritans are the uneducated in our city. Those who have different ethnicities, different gifts, different economic statuses, the homeless, the underemployed, the immigrant who speaks a different language. See, it's all too easy to stereotype these people, is it not these people, those people, and create a negative caricature if we don't know them personally. Do you make a point to push back your own cultural insularity and spend time with people who are very different than you? Do you have a sense of their struggles, their hopes, their fears, their dreams, their brokenness, and their need for Christ? Sometime ago, Liz and I had the joy of getting to know an immigrant family from Iran. We still keep up with them, they've moved, but we understood for the first time, or at least fresh, what it's like to be an immigrant through our system and what it means to not know the language and face all the ups and downs. It's not just them, it's their names. It's people we know, pictures on our refrigerator. And they were so dear and welcoming to us. Perhaps the Samaritans in your life are those who are too far gone. Maybe the Samaritans in your life are those people who are struggling with deep addictions or mental health needs. People who are hostile to the Christian faith or activists of social causes that are deeply contrary to your Christian convictions. Are you willing to get to know them, even though you differ with them? At fundamental levels, are you writing them off 
when Jesus is running after them. And perhaps I think it's another category as those who are too far up, not just too far gone and too far down. It's sometimes we have great cultural prejudice for those who are the up and outers of society. I was getting my hair cut recently and I get culturally aware when I read People magazine. Helps me. You can pray for me that way. And I was just, the lightest edition, it just splashed with George Clooney and the big wedding. Maybe you follow all that. And I found myself <laughs> imagining what the disciples, I, I was thinking of the Samaritan woman. I don't know why, I was just thinking about that. And, you know, I was just like the disciples. I reacted in my mind and heart about Clooney and all that. No matter how successful, how wealthy, there's only one who can satisfy their soul, whether the wedding is 20 million or 50 million or whatever it was. Right? To us, Samaritans, maybe people who are wealthy and live in a certain part of town. Or the pretty people that grace the covers of our city magazines. They may be business executives or government officials or professional athletes or entertainers or models. People are too beautiful, too successful, too sufficient, too pretty to need to be rescued by Jesus, we think. But we all need to be rescued. We all need to be forgiven. We all need to experience the grace that Jesus can provide only. So are you running after those Jesus runs after? Are you like the Samaritan woman who after encountering Jesus and experiencing what Jesus did in her heart, you are enthusiastically sharing the good news of the gospel with others? With your friends at school? With your neighbors? Those you work with and play with? Will you and I love others as Jesus loves them right where they are? with all the brokenness of our lives. Will you engage them in conversation out of love first? And will you encourage them in time to come and see Jesus, the one who has changed your life? Francis Schaeffer, 20th century apologist, is one of my favorite writers in many ways. And he was asked once how he would spend an hour with non-Christians. If he had an hour with a non-Christian, and this is what he said. He said, I would listen for 55 minutes, and then in the last five minutes, I would have something to say. Who has God placed in your life this week? Image bearers of God whom Christ died for. Will you write off others that Jesus runs after? Dr. Rosaria Butterfield's words fill my heart with both repentance, and hope. She says, I did not want to lose everything that I loved. Her water jar. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of us, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, need a moment of confession before you. May we see others as you see them. Protect us, Lord, for those of us who are rescued from holier-than-thou attitudes, from self-righteousness. And give us a passion and compassion for those around us that you love so much you died for them. Lord, give us your heart and your eyes, we pray. 